0: I came out to the desert to breathe some fresh air, to lay down some burdens, not think so much about the state of the country, but of course, there's nowhere in America you can go and not be confronted with our
1: identity crisis. Since the start of 2021, my colleague Tyrone Beeson has been on the road. He's doing what a lot of us are thinking about. He's on a quest to find out what's up with the United States. In a year-long series called My Country, Tyrone has been trying to find the things that bind us together, while also trying to make sense of the issues that keep tearing us apart. And right now, what's on his mind is the midterms and what the results will say about this country he's trying so hard to understand. I'm Gustavo Ariano. You're listening to The Times, essential news from the L.A. Times. It's Friday, August 19th, 2022. Today, we continue our series of episodes about the stakes of the 2022 midterm elections. We'll talk to Tyrone about what Americans all around have told them about what pains them and what gives them hope. Tyrone Beeson covers the U.S. through the lens of race and culture. Welcome to Times, Tyrone.
0: Very good to be here. Thank you.
1: So your My Country series, man. It's gorgeous writing, a lot of traveling, big, long, elegant stories that really are doing a great job of just showing everything that this country is about right now. What inspired you to
0: do it? Honestly, covering the 2020 presidential race, I came to the LA Times to join the team that would be following the Democrats and eventually going out to Iowa and South Carolina and all these places. But at some point, my editor and I decided that what I would do is uh, look at this election through the lens of race, which is a perfect way to do it, especially during the sort of post-Obama and then pre-Trump <laughs> era and pre-insurrection era as we would come to find out. I felt like these tensions were one of the main drivers of our sort of national crisis around who we are, who belongs, from integration to black people's relationship to law enforcement. To income inequality and I wanted to find out just what was stirring in the belly of that beast while writing about the candidates and the races. To me, I think there's a national story. There's a story that sort of overarches our politics. You know, it's a new century. We have changed so much demographically. We're going to become a majority minority country at some point in the relatively near future. I feel like some of that anxiety over change and who's going to fit in to this new America. I think some of that is what was driving our politics and driving people to vote the way we were, they were voting, to act out the way they were acting out. And I just wanted to understand that and make that a, a sort of a subtext in all of my work. And it wound up being a perfect starting point for doing a series that was only about that, so after the election, you know, I was in Phoenix. I was out there. I was probably 10 feet away from the dude with the sort of buffalo horns who was one of the <laughs> uh, I QAnon note. shaman. Yeah, the, the QAnon shaman. I had a picture of him on my iPhone. So when I was watching the insurrection live on TV, really, and his picture came up, I'm like, oh, my God, I saw this guy. I heard him talking about wait until January, trying to console those people out in front of the Mariposa County Elections Office who had basically lost the election, even though they had refused to accept that. And I just felt like, wow, wouldn't it be great to travel the country and try to understand how moments like this have deep roots in our conflict over race identity? Whose America is this? Because I think that's what they were really screaming about in Phoenix. And obviously, they're almost literally saying those words (laughs) during the insurrection, When you started,
1: were there themes or topics that you knew you wanted to hit? Or was it more like just going to go around the United States, literally pull over to wherever you thought there was something interesting worth
0: checking out? A lot of my stories seem random like that, but they have a reason. So each one of them takes a topic and then I find a place that I believe will help me explore that topic. So the first story in the series was actually a road trip to the inauguration. And where do you feel like the country's going? I'm on my way to D.C., obviously, for the inauguration. But I want to stop here because I think the story of this city tells us a lot about where America's head's at. I and because to... I'm writing about it through this sort of racial sort of context and through my own belief that what people are trying to foment is an, another kind of a civil war, maybe not with giant armies and that kind of thing. But why not start it in the South? I'm from the South. I was born in Kentucky and I covered South Carolina. I covered those primaries. I saw President Biden accept the victory in South Carolina, I was like 15 feet away from the guy and saw the tears in his eyes and started to understand why he felt it was necessary to thank the black people of South Carolina for elevating him to victory.
1: As I stand here today because of the minority communities, I am very much alive because of you.
0: So I started it in a place that was relevant to the story. And each of these is relevant to some aspect of American life or its culture or its history. And that's the way I frame this. But then I leave myself open to possibility as I travel, open to different voices entering my sphere and allowing myself to shape-shift and question my own assumptions along the way. So I came here to kind of think a little bit about why it is I felt and still feel that it's race, identity, belonging, um, calling oneself an American and you know, all those things seem to be at play right now.
1: That's what I like so much about your series is that you're always you're questioning people, but you're also questioning yourself. And in that first road trip, you focused a
0: lot of it on Charleston, South Carolina. Why there? Because that was the uh, birthplace of the first Civil War. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I really took a kind of a high school textbook sort of factoid and I just went there. Also, Charleston will tell you everything you need to know about the South and about the way the country formed and on whose backs it was formed. The whole city was built by enslaved Africans. If you drive through the Low country of South Carolina, you can see the sort of the dikes and the former rice paddies, which are now sort of bird sanctuaries. And so the ghosts of the past are everywhere in and around Charleston. And I need my locations to resonate like that. You know what I mean? I need to be able to feel the spirit of the country and the place. And there is no better place to understand this conflict, actually this contradiction between our high-minded ideals and the way we actually do each other than in Charleston. And so that's why I wanted that to be the launching pad. Also, I didn't just start it in Charleston. I literally started my trip in front of Mother Emanuel AME Church, where, as you remember, in 2015, a white supremacist pretending to be part of a Bible study wound up massacring nine African-Americans to start a race war. And this happened actually in the days after Trump announced his presidency, by the way. And so it was a really sort of heavy, heavy place for me. And I'd been there before. And that grief that I felt the first time I visited that church, I mean, I wanted to start there. I wanted to start with my grief and my dismay and drive from an emotional place as well as a physical starting point. The massacre here hurt me in a way that I'm still trying to understand. And I think that's true for a lot of us in the African-American community. We carry the suffering, the pain of other African-Americans with us. For us, it's not news events. Um, it's the condition that we find ourselves in in this country.
1: As you're going on that first road trip, you eventually end up in the capital a couple weeks after January 6th. What was the vibe when you finally got there?
0: <laughs> like one of those sort of uh, summer blockbuster movies where it's like the end of America and some alien comes and like clears out all the big cities. I've never experienced anything like that in, wow. in my country. <laughs> I <sighs> How do I explain this? When you arrive in D.C., you are immediately struck by the grandeur of its monuments and its federal buildings. I was struck by the total silence of that entire neighborhood. You know, it's really creepy to be out here. Uh, There are dump trucks in the street here. There's a cordon here, so you can't get into uh, Lafayette Park. This is an important inauguration. We're about to swear in the first black woman of color as vice president of the United States. The United States doesn't get a lot of moments like this. We haven't allowed ourselves to have a lot of moments like this. We got Barack Obama, basically, and that's it. So the idea that I've, I've made this trip across the country and then up through the South, talking about how America keeps failing to redeem its self for its sins when it comes to race and, and who belongs, who doesn't. You know, thinking about how we seem to be at war with ourselves, at least ideologically, and to get here when we should be sort of rallying around this very important moment. Regardless of where we stand, it's important that she will be up there on, that, on those steps tomorrow being sworn in and hardly anybody will get to see it in person. I guess it doesn't make me sad, it makes me mad. National Guard Mm -hmm. troops were blocking roadways, entry points to these public monuments, to our capital, to prevent more rioting, to prevent more sort of chaos. And so I'm walking through the Capitol a couple of days before the inauguration, the biggest day of the year, really, (laughs) or, or of the cycle, you know, think about it in terms of its ceremonial meaning. And there's nobody there but armed forces. And police officers. And it was so chilling. And it really validated to me that there's something bigger going on here, even than Trump. I think we're going through some sort of a tectonic shift. And there's a lot of Americans who are not happy with what they think their place will be in our future. And at the same time, with this amazing flowering of other people of color, gays and lesbians, women who... F- found their voices in a way that they never have. It's amazing to think about that in the total silence of our National Mall and the parks around the White House and uh, to think about this period that should be so celebratory. Regardless of who wins, this is our moment. It's an inauguration, it's a peaceful transfer of power. And to feel no peace
1: More on Tyrone's journey after the break. Tyrone, your series has jumped around in places and topics. And shortly after you started in the South through your road trip right to DC for the inauguration, you ended up going down to the US Mexico
0: border near San Diego. Why there and what did you find? Part of this series is about identity and belonging. And I did that intentionally. It's not just about race. It's about this eternal question in the United States of who's in and who's out. Who do we allow to belong? And who do we forever treat as if they are from another planet? Certainly, I understand that as an African-American, right? I mean, that's kind of an inspiration for the whole story. My own background as a black guy in this country and who deals with some of these issues. But it's not limited to people like me. It is also the story of other brown people who make this country run and who also sort of provoke us to talk about these contradictions. And so obviously, you know, in the Trump era, there was this Remain in Mexico program that basically forced asylum seekers, migrants coming up through Mexico to remain in Mexico while their cases proceeded in the United States. And so what I wanted to do was to go to the border and meditate on that line, that dividing line between who's in and who's out, and think about our country in that context at the same time that the new president, uh, Biden, was trying to sort of reform and do away with the Remain in Mexico program and implement a more, in his eyes, humane process for the migrants and asylum seekers. The Supreme Court certifies its ruling it issued June 30th, allowing the Biden administration
1: to end the Trump-era Remain in Mexico policy for asylum seekers. Federal immigration law gives the executive a lot of authority over who gets into the country and who can stay in the country.
0: And it was an incredibly powerful trip, because the border really means anything. And I was actually inspired by Donald Trump, who famously and repeatedly said, if you don't have a borders, you don't have a country.
1: We're defending our borders, because if you don't have borders, you don't have a country. You don't have a country.
0: And I'm like, that's true, technically. But actually you don't have a country unless you have a way for people to feel like they belong and unless you make people feel like they want to.
1: Oh it's happening. That's happening.
0: Well it's happening What'd you think of the wall when you finally saw it? I'd seen it before. And, I, you know, it's funny because it's not a wall. It's a fence. It's an iron one. And in some places, it's a double fence. And it says a lot about this idea of sort of fortress America. You know, the idea that we erect not just one, but two walls to keep people out who we don't think belong. But, of course, the wall is also representative of this great contradiction because there are at least 10 or 11 million undocumented people working and paying taxes and raising families and sending their kids to school in this country. And for the most part, we don't say a word about it until we have to decide whether they truly belong. And that's where the immigration debate always gets gummed up. So I wanted to take that wall and not just think about it as a barrier, but as a conduit and as a representation of a physical manifestation of our inability to decide what this country really is and who really should be here. You know, I walked away from my experience on the other side of the border feeling a bit mixed because I know that the chances of people from Central America and from Haiti getting asylum anytime soon are pretty slim. But that's not something I wanted to tell the people I met because for them, the United States is everything.
1: And then this past March, you went to California's wine country. And when I saw the name Paso Robles, I'm like, oh, hopefully Tyrone's going to take a little break, go drink your Chardonnays or whatever they grow there. But
0: you found a whole other story. What'd you find? Yeah. Yeah, I wish. It's a lovely area. And I'd actually never visited that area before. And again, taking a place that seems familiar to us, you know, it's California wine country, must be pretty bougie. And it is in a lot of ways. But what else is there? And what I've been reading was that they'd had this sort of controversy and debate over critical race theory because a group of concerned citizens in the wake of the George Floyd protests had campaigned to reinstitute an ethics studies program at the local high school. And it became this sort of debate, and it exposed this fissure. There's a white sort of power structure in Paso Robles, as it is in a lot of cities that are super diverse in California, but still sort of run by white folks. And it's also quite conservative. And so you saw this sort of fissure revealed in the controversy over whether or not to have an ethics studies program and this discussion over whether it would advocate for what conservatives were calling critical race theory, taking this sort of obscure legal philosophy and approach from the 70s and applying it to our sort of racial and debate over what America is today. So I wanted to understand what that was like. I talked to one student, Mel Ruth Gonzalez, at the high school, who's super cool. And she was just confused about why this was even a huge controversy in the first place.
1: This class is a class to make everyone feel safe, to open up their minds and hear the opinions of everyone. You know, learn about many ethnic cultures in the United States that help shape America to what it is today.
0: She was part of that group of people who were campaigning for the class. And for her, as a young Latina, it's like... Why wouldn't you want to experience the stories of other people, good and bad, stories of tragedy and stories of triumph? That's America, and certainly for immigrant communities, which is what her family represents.
1: People just think, oh, America started with white people. No, 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 no. This was such a hotspot for immigrants. Like, come on, look at us. We are such a diverse country.
0: It was really fun to talk to her because she's so enthusiastic about finally having a class that'll give her that boost for her identity and for her people, but then to think about how others are offended by it.
1: And at this point, it's spring of this year and you're uncovering these stories, you know, scratching below the surface to use that cliche. How was that affecting your thinking of where the nation's politics were in March of twenty twenty two and how much had they progressed as you've been on the road?
0: I think we all know now that it regressed. I mean, as we learn about the depth of the organization of the January 6th attack on the Capitol, and as we see this uh, sort of slow march of voting rights laws across the states and laws preventing teachers from talking about the LGBTQ community, this did not end with January 6th. It did not end with Donald Trump. This is a part of the national conversation. And as a reporter, and again, as a like guy in America. I know that these are arguments we've had before. So it really sealed my conviction that these stories are important because political cycles don't end the debates that politicians use to get votes. And they've doubled down, right? And these sort of culture wars continue. And so it really drove me and inspired me to keep looking.
1: And you always hit on the big topics. And, of course, the past couple of months, the biggest topics have been abortion and LGBTQ rights. So where did you go to illustrate those themes?
0: Those stories were really to try to understand why why this Roe v. Wade decision, the one overruling it or overturning it, was written this way. It's pretty broad, and it basically invites challenges to... Other constitutionally guaranteed or court affirmed rights and privileges for other types of people. Certainly in the yeah you know, the LGBTQ community, but think about it. I mean, in say my lifetime or my mother's lifetime, black and white people can't get married. Two men, two women can get married. There's been this opening of sort of understanding toward the trans community and people who are non-binary. Think about all the things that have happened since then. Women have a vastly different place in American life than they did when my mom or grandma were born, you know, I kind of felt like all that was on the table. And a lot of experts believe the same. So with those stories, I talked to people who were both queer and women, or who were people of color, and who have an experience writing about or advocates for civil rights, you know, and queer rights. I really do hope that even though there will be a lot of resistance and there will be targets towards our community, we still need to, be we still need to we fight, fight because the fight never ends until all of us are safe. And they're not going to be safe until we codify the laws, until we get the right people in office, until we have some people that actually represent who we are as a people. And so as part of that, I decided to just go and, again, feel the mood. A lot of my stories are about the mood, the climate, the tone. And the Roe v. Wade decision, when it finally came out, I mean, it was leaked months ago, but then it finally uh, came out. And the next day, it just happened to be Orange County Pride. I think we need to take back pride as it was before a riot. It started as a protest. It should be a protest. We need to go back to our roots and be in the streets and be active and vote and get the people around you to vote, too. This intersectionality was really important to me. I know it's kind of an overused term, but honestly, I was looking for people who represented the different sort of conflicts in American life. And this war that a lot of us have to fight in order just to be accepted and to live our lives freely. So those stories wind up not being just about the abortion issue, but about all these other transformative moments in the civil rights history of this country that have allowed people to just be in the country.
1: And what I liked about you coming to where I'm from, Orange County, California, is that this is another place that historically, of course, was very, very Republican, had a lot of anti LGBT politics come out of it. And now it's completely changed and it's getting more and more purple. And I mean, the fact that there is an Orange County pride alone says so much.
0: Orange County has an ethnic mix that's a little bit different from, say, where I live here in L.A. and from maybe the west side of L.A. And so I wanted to find people who were young and fired up about this, but also who are thinking about the future, are thinking about their place in the country 20, 30 years from now. Will they be able to enjoy the same sort of freedoms that I did for this little blip in time, you know, when I was coming of age? And so it was really important for me to go to a place like the historic center of Santa Ana, where several hundred people had gathered to celebrate their community, but also to think about what it might mean if this Supreme Court decision opens the door to the erosion of their rights and privileges.
1: We'll have more on Tyrone's My Country series after the break.
0: So, I'm um, here in the Inland Empire in Moreno Valley um, on a perch that gives you a good vantage point to take in the suburban sprawl, but also the really beautiful ranch lands that are more of a common sight for those who lived here for a long time. And I so,
1: just- Tyrone, the latest piece of your series goes to the Inland Empire in Southern California. What was the story that drew you to go out there?
0: Well, it's a story that's a long time in the making. Now, certainly uh, people who, who have lived in the Inland Empire for years know that it's been changing steadily for decades and becoming more black and brown. So I'm coming into it as kind of a newbie, right? I don't know the Inland Empire as well as I do L.A., and I only knew it from what I saw passing between L.A. and, uh-huh. say, Palm Springs and Joshua Tree. I think for most of us, you know, it's on the 10 or the 60 or one of those highways heading to Las Vegas, you pass through the Inland Empire. And so I wanted to understand how people of color could make a life out here. And it's this constellation of suburbs, lots of freeway interchanges, there's office parks full of warehouses that are like a million square feet or more in size and ranches and and just badlands, and it looks like a mess from the road, and even from the air. If you're flying into LAX, you fly over the Inland Empire before you reach LA. And so I wanted to understand what was there in this sort of mess, this sort of grid gone wrong, (laughs) and to find the American dream there. Is this possible for black folks and other people of color to live the American dream here? Yes, it is. But you can have anything you want if you apply yourself. Ain't nobody going to hand you nothing. So I honestly went looking for the American dream in a place that I had sort of written off. And I wanted to challenge my own stereotypes and my own sort of dislike, at least as far as I knew from the vantage point of my car on a highway, of this place. And to make it a real place and understand how other people do. What is the thing you think that is most, uh, that you prefer here that you didn't get in L.A.? Like, what is it about you? (laughs) That'll be the main the main thing that I could think of, you know. Peace. Just to be exact. <laughs> that's I a, peace. that's the it, boy, Nice. Peace. And I have to say this, I didn't put it in the story, but we had spent a couple of years, certainly 2020 and early 21, talking about police violence, you know, in the black community. And if you go to any city in America, you will undoubtedly see someone wearing a t shirt that says, I can't breathe, you know, referring to the dying words of George Floyd and sadly others who've had these encounters with law enforcement. And while the story wasn't about that idea of not having so much tension in your life that you can't even take a deep breath and enjoy being on this soil, that is what drove me and what made these comments so powerful to me when people said that they came out there and what they found was not just affordable housing, which is declining, of course, because every as prices go up all over Southern California, but they found peace.
1: But even as black folks moved into the Inland Empire to find that peace, the good life is still not completely there for them yet.
0: Yeah. And the good life wasn't there before. A lot of the communities out there have miserable histories of racism and segregation. Klansmen were basically staging parades off the city hall steps in Fontana up until like the 80s, really. So the Inland Empire comes with its own baggage. It's not a particularly welcoming place if you sort of read a history book about the region. But Still, there's this possibility. But, you know, I kept going back with this story, going back and forth because I know that it's not great for everybody. I talked to a warehouse worker who, he's been working in these jobs for years, and he talked about the rampant exploitation and abuse of workers, just so that we can get our deliveries in two days here at our homes in LA and other cities. So what, what do you want politicians to do to make life better for the warehouse workers in the Inland Empire? ¿Qué quiere que los políticos hagan para poder hacer la vida mejor aquí en el Nenon Empire? Exigen a las compañías que paguen lo justo. So he
1: wants them to hold the companies accountable to pay a living wage or to allow them benefits, so these folks don't have to get a second job or have their wife work two jobs and just to make ends meet here with the high cost of living.
0: The hard work that goes into making the logistics industry, which is pretty much a predominant sort of field out there, make it tick, means that people like him are living on the margins, even as others in my story are living their American dream. And I wanted to make sure to get those parallel lives fleshed out, because while some people might find a kind of peace that they didn't get in the city in L.A. or Long Beach or San Diego or wherever, there are others there who have no peace because life can be very hard. In the Inland Empire. You know, it's long commutes and long days and hard, sweaty work. It's not as affordable as it was when this wave started happening a couple of decades ago. So I wanted to make sure to reflect that as I move through. Tyrone, you've
1: gone through the South. You went to D.C., you went to rural towns, the border. We didn't even talk about what you found in Puerto Rico, but we got to give people a hint of it so they could read the entire series. But finally, November's coming. How are you feeling about our country right now as the midterms Luma had.
0: Well, uh, sick. My stories are very honest. There's a kind of a disclaimer that says I'm writing about this biggest of my experience as a black man in America. And so I felt sick when I started it because of what I'd witnessed and just how I've lived and encountered my country. But as we look at these culture wars and these conflicts and this sort of push for power, both sides, I just don't see a resolution. I don't see us coming together. And I launched this series looking for signs of healing and redemption. And there are some, but I don't believe that there are enough. I don't know that we're in that headspace right now. And that really worries me. My hope is that a new generation of Americans will decide to actually learn history, <laughs> speak to each other open up and reveal themselves in a way that they did not feel confident doing before, that people who've sat on the sidelines or didn't want to hear stories like mine will open their hearts and start to listen, and that we'll try to have a country again.
1: Tyrone, thank you so much for this conversation. To read Tyrone's My Country series, go to latimes.com slash mycountry or follow him on Twitter at Tyrone underscore Beeson. That's B-E-A-S-O-N. So you can follow him on his reporting quest. And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from The L.A. Times. Ashley Brown was a hef on this episode and Mike Heflin mixed and mastered it. Our show is produced by Shannon Lynn, Denise Guerra, Kasha Brasali, David Oledo and Ashley Brown. Our editorial assistant is Madeline Amato. Our intern is Surya Hendry. Our engineers are Mario Diaz, Mark Nieto, and Mike Heflin. Our editor is Kinsey Moreland. Our executive producers are Hasmina Aguilera, Hiba El-Urbani, and Shani Hilton. And our theme music is by Andrew Epen. Like what you're listening to? Then make sure to follow The Times on whatever platform you use. Don't make us to put you I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news and this desmadre. Gracias.